0: Welcome to LameStream here on the 440 Sports Network. My name is Braden Gall. You can follow me on Twitter at Braden Gall.
1: You can follow me on Twitter at Scavendish. I'm Steve Cavendish. If you uh, are so inclined, please rate, review, subscribe us. Smash the subscribe button. It will make you feel better.
0: And share the show. Tell one person that's all we ask. Again, we still have a gift card to give away $100 to Four Top Hospitality, which is an amazing collection of restaurants in Nashville. All you have to do is send us some examples of Hashtag talk about on Twitter at 440 sports hashtag talk about examples of people in the media sports or otherwise offering up questions that aren't questions by using the phrase, talk about your schedule, talk about your mindset, talk about, talk about hashtag talk about hashtag talk about. So I I will say this, and I'm not afraid to say this. Literally just one person could win this right now. (laughs) We had one person send us something that didn't count uh but if you send us again just tweet at 440 sports hashtag talk about one example of this you will get a hundred dollar gift card we are trying to give away free money here steve on the show that's what we're trying to
1: play great places i love the restaurants uh i've been at amerigo several times here during the pandemic uh great takeout if you're in the mood for italian can't uh, say enough kind of nice things about them but literally folks it is the easiest contest that you could win
0: Yes, because you literally could go back to episodes of this show. <laughs> <laughs> but and don't s- do that. And send us some examples of when we screwed it up. Uh, so check that out. No guests today on the show, because we're sort of going to do some, it, we're kind of just going to interview e- each other, because we've had some of our, we haven't really done this much, Steve, which is there's a lot of, our, of lessons that we have learned throughout our own careers, both. Through amazing and incredible experiences and also some terrible and embarrassing experiences, and so we 're sort of going to have some some holiday fun here around the L- little fireside chat
1: here on the holidays, yeah,
0: exactly. so a lot of different topics we 're going to get to sort of the biggest mistakes we 've made in our careers i 've been fired twice i don 't know how many times you 've been fired the most entertaining people we 've uh, interviewed and dealt with and, and worked with, and, and some of the worst interviews we 've ever had, as well as some of the toughest topics. We've ever had to cover stories we've had to write and, and sort of some turning points in our careers, and maybe some of the lessons that we've learned throughout all that stuff. And maybe I don't know, I'll offer up some advice to some young people out there. I don't know, dealing with trying to get into this godforsaken industry.
1: <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> Please don't do that.
0: Learn Chinese, HTML code, and accounting. That's exactly. what I recommend for my children.
1: Start with accounting.
0: So do you want to start with sort of some some of the toughest? Topics and stories you've ever had to work on, Steve. Because I think that's I've got three very easy answers to this, but I want you, you know, what what were some of the most difficult stories? Again, whether it was from a like an ethical standards, you know, sourcing, just topical. What, what were some of the toughest things you've ever had to write about uh, in your career?
1: So two kind of two kind of jump to mind. One was when I was editor of the City Paper. We did a piece on Montgomery Bell Academy. And recruiting the uh, financial aid that was given kind of inappropriately to students, the problem was that the, the the story was completely sourced. no one would go on the record and so whenever you're dealing with sourced material you and we've talked about this hashtag talk about we have discussed this on the uh, program you have to you have to be very careful about the level of vetting that you do on the sources you you can't just blindly take someone's word. You have to dig in and confirm things. And when you're dealing, I mean, in, in the world of recruiting, it 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 can be really sort of it, it can get really murky in a, in a hurry. Another another reporter and I, uh, Ken Whitehouse, uh, were working on it. Uh, he had some really good sources. I had a couple. What it came down to was we knew that there were records. Because they had been investigated by the TSSAA, the, the state uh, high school governing body, that, that would have confirmed all of this. And so we sued the TSSAA in order to get those records, but nobody, which nobody had ever done before. What happened was we went through a couple of different layers of court opinions that outlived the city paper in general. The court case went on for three years. Uh, But the TSSAA was found by the state courts to be the functional equivalent of a government agency. That's What they essentially said was the state of Tennessee has outsourced this to them, so they have to live by open records law. And as a result, now you can file open records requests with the TSSAA just like you would with the state government. But that didn't come back until after we had already closed the city paper in 2014. When, when we got the, the verdict in from the state appellate court, the fall of 2014, I wrote a big piece for for the Nashville scene that kind of laid all of it out and did a big interview with Brad Joya, who was their headmaster at the time, still is, just kind of asking him the questions about this. And I think the takeaway from all of that is, and again, this is a discuss, something we've discussed on this program, adults are often <laughs> the, the, the focus of the story, not kids. Uh, I don't begrudge anybody that got a, a great education from, from MBA and the rules were, if you took financial aid, you, you shouldn't have been able to play football or baseball or basketball or, or whatever you know, sports these kids were, were doing. Those were just the rules and they, and they weren't being followed. And this was systemically over, you know, over a couple of decades.
0: Yeah, I think one of the things I've learned, because I've lived in the college football world for most of my career, I would say one of the things that I've changed on or evolved or learned or whatever through that that process, I think we as a culture, fans of college football, basketball, whatever, have reached the point now where we just don't care about a family getting a couple of extra bucks on the side. That battle has been waged in the court of public opinion. And I think the verdict is in that, that most people just don't care that someone's getting. Now, we, we care about the adults who are cheating and how they're doing so. And the NCAA rules are the NCAA rules. But I don't think anybody cares that all these teams are kind of doing it. All these players are kind of getting a little extra here and there. And I, I just don't I don't view it as amoral anymore. I used <laughs> to view it as, as maybe amoral. And now I just for the last 10 years, I just have not viewed it that way.
1: It's amazing to me how the Overton window, the, the kind of the, the, the way the public opinion has shifted over the last few decades, has, has shifted onto the NCAA and the problematic ways that the NCAA enforces, enforces these things and sort of the system that's built around it and kind of what it perpetuates and, and who's benefiting. Those questions are being asked in a way that were never asked 25 years ago. I think that's a very good thing.
0: All right. So what what else, anything else sort of stand out to you in your career from a, a, a really difficult standpoint or. We,
1: we, we did a story when I was at the scene uh, about Casey Moreland, who was a general sessions judge here in town. Moreland had gone to Florida with a couple of other lawyers and their girlfriends problematic because some of them were married. And one of the relationships between one of the the girlfriends and one of the attendees went sideways kind of blew up and then she came back to Nashville and killed herself and oh man but in the reporting on all that was when it sort of unraveled that Moreland had used the bench as a way to meet someone which who was who was in front of him for a DUI offense she had told police here in town that that she had, you know, slept with the judge in order to get out of it. An FBI investigation opens. Moreland ends up Moreland ends up going to jail for it. But it, it was tricky reporting because we had we had the police report, but nobody wanted to talk. And so you start digging through records and sticking through kind of like everything that you can kind of put together to tell a story about this sort of thing. A couple of other outlets here in town were also chasing the story. So everybody all of a sudden if you can do a story like that, what you want is time and and you know, clear headedness, what you don't want is like a lot of competition, and everybody chasing to, to get this one thing, because that's usually kind of how mistakes get made. All of a sudden, it became competitive. And, you know, most of the most of the reporters in town are are competitive, but friendly. Uh, And we all had kind of talked about, you know, who's chasing the story and what we were rushing, because I knew that, you know, we had to we had to beat a deadline of five o'clock, which is when one of the broadcast stations was going to air their first report. And so, you know, everybody's just sort of rushing for the rushing for the goal line and you want to get it right.
0: You know, you weren't necessarily in the situation, but that does, it does make me think about theory I have. And I want to say, again, I'm not going to go too deep into politics here, but this is about media. The Iowa caucuses this year with the democratic party, but remember there was all kinds of conflicting information the night of the Iowa caucus and You've got all these media entities in the state all trying to track down into like what hundreds of different districts and precincts or whatever, trying to track down all the votes. Well, if they had all just worked together, which I know is not in the you know, spirit of, of capitalistic competition in the media. But right. if, if they, if every news organization were to have pooled all of their resources and together, they, they would have fr- figured it out a lot quicker. They would have come up with a fi- definitive winner or loser or second, third, fourth place in an, an event like that so much faster than if they're all trying to figure it out themselves, which I actually, that's a media story. I think you could apply this to like medical problems too. <laughs> like right. if, if every single massive ingenious scientist in the world at every corporation proprietarily was working on the cure for cancer, I think we'd be curing cancer faster. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know if that's a, a reach or not.
1: No, but, but so it's why, for instance, there's a thing called an embargo on a story, uh, particularly if it's a weighty kind of story. Most of my wife used to work for the National Academy of Sciences when we lived in lived in D.C. 20 years ago. And one of the things that they had was uh, an embargo system. The thing that it was designed for was so that it took the the deadline pressure off. This story is is embargoed until this date at this time and allowed reporters to report on it. They just couldn't publish. And so what you saw was like the really competitive outlets. And there was a science writer at the New York Times who would always do this, would get like draft reports as opposed to the actual report and then report off of that and beat the embargo in order to kind of beat the competition. And it, all that is, is ego. All that is, is I'm going to get there first. And what happens is, is when you, in, you know, in reporting off of that draft, things change and the story sometimes got botched. And, and so, you know, in situations like this, I mean, I was a great example. If there were more of a, of a spirit of, of cooperation or collaboration among the media, you would often get a better result than kind of what you get.
0: Yeah. No question about it. I'll give you like the, the, the two, obviously I've never reported on anything in that sense, but I I, I can give you the two or three moments in my career where I can tell you that I just, like I walked away from the studio doing a show live on national radio. Like feeling like a different person, like just walking away going like, Oh my, like, like just like you said, the weight, right. A weighty story and the first one and this would have been i think maybe the first football season i was back on sirius xm and uh, i was doing like evenings so a lot of times i was solo and if, for those that don't know it's like it's not glamorous at all it is it is we have these tiny little rooms in bridgestone arena and in the baby space needle there and you sit in these little rooms and basically talk to yourself like you can't see a producer because your producer is in, in washington dc You can't, your callers are on a screen. Your guests are not there. You're, if you're with another host, he's not, he or she's not with you. You're just sitting in a room by yourself talking to the entire country. It's very, very strange. I I was comfortable like that because no one could see me. (laughs) But you have to sort of understand how odd it is. I, I say that because the Thursday night, this would have been 2011, I believe, the Thursday night that Joe Paterno was fired from Penn State. And so this was, I don't remember exact timeline, but there was a couple of days and week and a half or so where there was this the Sandusky story had broke and people knew about it and there was all this stuff and this is where all the Penn State fans were outside Joe Pa's house having a vigil for Joe Pa and all this stuff. And then finally, I think before the Nebraska game, they announced he was gonna be let go. And I was on the air. I had to do like six to eight PM by myself, solo, producer's not there, no co host, and the phone lines break. So I cannot take any phone calls, which is an easier thing to do when you're talking about a very difficult subject. You can kind of give, I think callers add more value when you're in a very complex situation because they they can sort of, everyone can have their opinion, right? And there's sort of different uh, approaches to everything. I I don't, you know, I don't really care about caller-driven radio as much when it's just regular stuff. There are certain topics that are better when everyone gets a chance to have an opinion. and. When Joe Paterno was fired, we the phone lines broke, and I'm sitting there. I had to do two hours by myself talking about why Joe Paterno was fired, <laughs> and we all know why he was fired. But at the time, the the complex nature of the athletic department at Penn State, the you you know why things were being released, where was the investigation taking place, where did the breakdown of information happen? There are still people today that don't know all the details about all the stuff that went down and who knew what, where, when, and how and why. And I'm like, you know, this would have been one of my first year or two on on Sirius XM by myself doing two hours having to explain to the country on the college sports station, the only national platform of its kind, why the most – the winningest coach in the history of the sport is being fired because of his former defensive coordinator allegedly molesting kids. And it's just – it's so like so I walked away just dr- emotionally drained.
1: Two questions. One, are you – paranoid about getting out over your skis in that situation
0: very much because uh, you have to it's no different than print except for the words kind of just float into the ether a little bit but you you say the wrong like it's amazing like so many people don't hear so much stuff when they listen to sports talk radio but then they all hear the one thing you don't want them to or something like when you screw up one thing and, and print has
1: got a print's got a backspace key that I am in love. with.
0: <laughs> now, now it, it's different. Cause once it's there, it's there, right? right. That's, that's the difference with print, but in live radio, you don't have that. You, if you, if you let it out, it's just out. And then you, it's easy to backpedal. I think you can easily say, if you make a mistake on the air, you can very easily say, Oh, I, you know, hang on a second. I meant to say, actually, you know, let, let me, let me rephrase that. Like you can, there's ways to sort of kind of do the editing in real time, but those situations where you're not really qualified, right? Like I'm not a legal expert. I'm not a, ironically now I actually work for a child sexual abuse charity. So I actually am a child sexual abuse expert now, ironically, but, and who knows, maybe that's part of what spurned me to get involved with our kids here in Nashville in the first place. But I just came away changed, having to talk about that, that subject. And similarly, the other one was I was on the air on Friday afternoon by myself filling in for Mark Packer, same channel, Sirius XM, College Sports Nation, I guess it's ESPNU Radio Now. And it was the Friday afternoon that Urban Meyer finally made a statement about Zach Smith, his assistant, who, you know, there was, again, the long story is, you know, 15, 20 years of alleged abuse all underneath Urban Meyer's watch without Urban Meyer really doing anything about it is sort of the, the gist of it. And there's still conflicting information there but Urban Meyer had not issued a statement yet about it. And I was on the air solo in the first hour. I said, guys, be prepared for a short suspension here. Just be prepared that Urban Meyer is going to be issued a short suspension. This was after he had lied at big 10 media days and then came back and finally, so first hour had a plan. (laughs) What do you guys think if Urban Meyer gets suspended for two or three games? This is what I'm hearing could happen. What do you guys think? Top of the second hour, he drops a statement, so now in real time, I have to read the statement on the air and then digest it and process it and then speak about it openly while it's while reading it in real time for the first time. So no time at all in radio to, to sort of digest and think through and process. You have to see it and then trust your instincts to react in real time. Top of the third hour, Zach Smith goes on Sports SportsCenter and, and speaks for the first time as well.
1: So you had the audio from that.
0: And so we played the audio and I'm not. So we played it. I came back, I'm not even kidding. We came back from the audio and I, I think my first words were, I was like, Andy, we're not playing that again. I, I that's what I said on the air. I said, we're not playing that ever again. Because it was just complete horseshit. It was just, right. it was just out there, it was propaganda in the middle of an investigation. And and so it, that was, and I just had Ohio State fans just bombard me with how awful I was. Like I one true story, one guy called me and said it's the first time I think I ever like truly cussed on Sirius XM. <laughs> Some guy called me and said, "If it was your son, you know he was beating his wife. Would you have done anything? Would you have turned him in?" And I was like, "You're goddamn right,
1: I would have." <laughs> and and that that's what I that's what that's what the calls were like. Like, do you, do you want to be in the chair in a situation like that? I mean, both the Paterno and the and the Urban Meyer things.
0: I I do now. I I I really enjoy it now. So I was on the air March 11th or 12th. March 11th, the day that the NBA canceled, the NHL canceled. Tom Hanks got coronavirus, the NCAA tournament said no fans. I was at the SEC tournament at Bridgestone. I was doing a show that night. Uh, you know, Fred Hoiberg for Nebraska had been taken to the ER during the big 10 tournament. Like this was an entire cavalcade of just bizarre coronavirus craziness. And I was really proud and exhilarated of the way we handled that show because it was all about everybody calm down. We're gonna to try to give you as much information as possible. We're going to try to be as responsible as possible and try to get the reporting right. And you have to do it in such a real time live way. It's exhilarating. Like it is, I, I, I walked away from that one just like 10 feet taller because I was like, I think we did a really good job telling the college sports fans about what's going on in the right way, in an accurate way, in a responsible way. And I was filled with like adrenaline. On the,
1: on the print side, you talk about wanting to be in the chair when stuff happens I was the the front page editor uh, at the Santa Jose Mercury News the night Princess Diana dies, and if you don't remember the timing on it, it's happening at like 3 a.m. in Paris. It's missing the East Coast papers, and this is 1997. So you know some of this is on the internet, but I mean the internet is not what it is today. So you're it's a Saturday night, it's the big Sunday print edition. We have a we have a huge package of. Like our best investigative education reporting that's going uh, that, that's going into this this huge thing that's dominating the front page, and then all of a sudden you start to see the flashes across the wire you know there's been an accident there's been you know people are being taken to the hospital we don't know if she's alive now she's dead and all the pa- all the, all the east Coast papers are missing it, and so th- there's a thing on the west coast where you're you, the rare sort of rare instance of like, well, what do we, what do we do with this and how, kind of how do we How do we blow this out? And so we ended up, the photos from that were terrible. (laughs) The digital imagery, you you can imagine 25 years ago, not what it is today. Uh, So transmitting that, you couldn't get anything from film. And by the way, we had deadlines kind of crashing down on us as well, because the Sunday paper, if you're doing print, is usually your biggest paper. So you have to, your deadlines are earlier. And so you're just all, we're looking up at like this 9, 30, 10 o'clock number going, how are we going to make this and what are we going to do with it? You, what you find out really quickly is what you found out that you either like being in that situation and figuring that puzzle out or you don't. And some people don't. I mean, they, 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 they like doing the job, but they don't like the kind of the added pressure of it. I always liked the pressure because the pressure was the, was the fun part of it. It was, the, it was the adrenaline that you don't normally get in an office job. I mean, usually the yeah. adrenaline comes from something else.
0: Yeah, no, I, I agree. I, I've, always, I've always relished the opportunity to talk about important things. And if I have the opportunity to talk about important things, you may disagree with me, and that's okay about my opinions. But when it comes to sort of delivering the appropriate content in the appropriate way so that everyone is informed enough to make their own opinions, I, I think that's sort of the job as a radio host, two parts, right, is one to to lay out all the information as accurately as possible and give it some context the way a reporter would. And then two, have an opinion about it, hopefully in an entertaining way and allow other people to sort of form their own opinions. And I, I I'm with you. I loved it. And even if I think about it now, like the adrenaline, even though I was emotionally drained after the Joe, the, the Joe Paterno show I had to do, I still like the reason I remember it is because it was so, you know, it was so intense Right. And as a naturally caffeinated, very intense person, I thrive in those <laughs> in those types of situations. I, I enjoyed those those types of situations.
1: Do you ever listen? To, do you ever listen to Brian Koppelman's, uh podcast? He, he has a he has a podcast called The Moment. Koppelman is the is the showrunner on Billions. He wrote Rounders. He's done a bunch of stuff, uh, kind of kind of in that Hollywood producing, writing, directing space. Uh, he's really good. for great-
0: him his money.
1: <laughs> pay that man his money
0: all night long he check check check, check he trick me Coppelman
1: koppelman uh, and koppelman 's a great follower on twitter koppelman 's podcast kind of revolves around sort of the moment that somebody 's life change, life changes or kind of like the the big sort of moments. Uh, in a career that that kind of makes something. Do you have a moment like that? Do you have a, do you have a, 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 you know, a kind of a turning point in your career that you're like, oh, I can do this or, oh, this is the, this is the thing I really want to do. Or this is the, this is the thing that changed the way I do things.
0: Yeah. I mean, it might, it might've happened like this summer, to be honest with you. Um, Ask me that question in 10 years. And and I, and that, that might be my answer, honestly. And I don't, I, I don't say that as a joke. I mean, I am now sort of running my own company and learning so much as I go, but doing it the way I believe it should be done. And there are different moments in your career when you're younger. I think getting an opportunity, you know, getting fired from Rivals.com in like 07 after like two years on the job, thinking my entire career was over and then realizing after two beers with my dad that like it was just the beginning, you know. And and then sure enough, like less than a month later, I'm on, I, I get hired by Athlon Sports and here I am today, still an employee of Athlon Sports technically. So, so, you know, that one, that one worked. Sirius gave me my first show, you know, shout out to Chris Childers who sort of helped facilitate this. And I had never hosted a live radio show by myself before. And they, what Sirius told me was, no, no, we want you to. I was like, why don't you just let me and Chris do the show or whatever? And they were like, no, no, go out there and do it yourself. It was throw you in the deep end and see if you can, you can sink, sink or swim. And I, I'm assuming that show was garbage. <laughs> but, <laughs> you don't have but tape on it? Prob- I hope not. Um, it, but it would have been <laughs> July of like 2011. And on my birthday, I did a show for two hours and was terrified. I, I, n- like sick to my stomach before the show. And got out there, and you know, I guess they they heard enough that I'm still actually technically employed by SiriusXM. So I, that that one's a big one. Um, getting to do the local show was another big one, but that didn't, you know, that didn't change me as much as more solidify sort of all the things that that I don't like about the business.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> I learned
0: those things through that process, but I needed that, but I needed that experience to learn those things. I, I could not have learned all of that stuff without that experience. And oh, by the way, I got to cover a Stanley cup final and an AFC championship game and an NFL draft in Nashville. Like it was so much fun. So.
1: One of the things uh, if you're not, if you're listening to this and you're not in media, you have to understand is that media is actively trying to spit people out. (laughs) Um, And it always has, but, but particularly the economic conditions around it have changed so dramatically over the last, you know, over the last 10 years, you know, whether it's print, whether it's broadcast, whether it's radio, you know, podcasting, whatever else it's actively trying to trying to get rid of you do do you think
0: do you think that that is the same though in radio television where you have like a live show because i i always viewed radio as like a football coach like every coach is hired to be fired every single show on television is canceled at some point right even the greatest ones right every every single radio show is probably going to get canceled at some point do you is that the same in in the print world do you feel like
1: I think the I think systemically yes because the because the, the the way the industry has changed and you know the number of positions that are out there have have changed and, and actually winnowed I don't know that uh, it's not as pronounced as it is but but it's there it's it's actively there and consolidations had a lot to do with that.
0: Yeah. What about you where was uh you you've had a lot of pretty pretty high profile gigs where was your turning point?
1: So in so in 1995, I, I had I had left the the banner because I wanted to work at a big city newspaper, and I got a job at the Detroit Free Press. Loved it. I mean, at, at that time, I was uh, I was an editor and designer, and, and I was you know doing production of the of the of the paper every day. And the the Free Press had a reputation as being one of the best in the in the country. They won tons of awards. They had a great staff you know, they had really good people to learn from. And I was a young journalist at that point in my career. So I get to Detroit and, you know, when you grow up in the South, you don't really think about labor relations because <laughs> there aren't any unions, uh, you know, here. I mean, Tennessee is like one of the most militantly right to work States in the world. And so, so what happens is I, I get to Detroit and there had been bargaining and saber rattling back and forth. And, I get there and on a Monday, literally the talks fell apart <laughs> the, between the between the newspapers and, and the unions. And what had happened was the, the two Detroit papers were a joint operating agreement uh, between the Gannett paper, which was the Detroit News, and the Knight Ritter paper that I was working for, the Detroit Free Press. And Knight Ritter was a, was a little bit passive uh, in those talks and they had always sort of been perceived as as not having as not being union busters. Gannett, however, had seen an opportunity that if we can beat the unions here in Detroit, we can, we can win anywhere. And so for them, they were all in and it really sort of escalated the talks. So that's on a Monday on a Tuesday, I'm still doing training. I mean, they're like still like teaching me like (laughs) the computer system and kind of like how to file my hours and all that stuff. Shop steward comes by not something I had not something I was familiar with beforehand shop steward comes by, puts a card on my desk and says, and says, sign it now, like get in the union now. And I'm like, what the hell? And about five, so I sign it. Cause you know, I, I know a lot of things, you know, yeah, I can grow up in unions, but I know enough to know I'm in Detroit, Michigan. And so I'm going to sign the card. And so you better, you better pick a side, bud. <laughs> so I picked a side. And uh, you, that day, the, they were having these emergency talks in uh, Mayor Archer's office as these big oaken double doors, they come out, they're out in the, both sides are out in the foyer, the newspapers and unions, and they're having like dueling press conferences because they're not gonna, they're not gonna wait for the other side to, to have theirs. And they're just like yelling stuff. And it just, it all devolves into sort of you know madness. And the executive editor of the paper, great guy named, named Heath Merriweather, comes by, puts his hand on my shoulder and says, Steve, I'm so sorry we brought you here. <laughs> what you want to hear on the second day of your job. So on the fourth day, uh, which was a Thursday, halfway through the shift, the strike had been called. And so I was, I was literally designing my first page at the, at the paper. The first thing that was going to get in print, a guy comes in with a milk crate puts it down on the on the floor in the middle of the newsroom and says you know brothers and sisters from local x whatever whatever we were we are now on strike against the detroit news and free press for unfair labor practices pick up your shit and go and literally the entire unionized newsroom gets up and walks out and managers are like scurrying into you know to computers behind people, like trying to like figure out how they're going to get the paper out. And, and what's really funny was like, everybody went down, the, the, the two papers were within two blocks of each other. Everybody walks down the street to the Detroit News because they knew Gannett was behind it and, and pickets the, the news. Nobody gave a shit about the free press. And so <laughs> at one point, they tried to bring in buses full of strike breakers. There were like rocks thrown at, oh, at wow. buses and, and you know, people rocking buses back and forth. And I'm, my eyes were just like wide this whole time. And so I stayed how, out on how, five, how old are you? 25. Oh, nice. And, and so I picked my side. You've and been obsessed so, ever since, huh? The, the thing I learned from that, though, was was that people who you know, people who are committed to a thing and find other people who are committed to a thing, those people will be your brothers and sisters for life. You know, I've got friends from that strike. And I was only on strike for four months. I left to go to New Jersey but you learn who the people are that, you know, that, that are willing to stand up beside you. And, you know, these these guys that were willing to stand up beside me, like, you know, carrying a picket all over the greater Detroit area, trying to, you know, trying to stop the paper from getting the the newspapers out every every week were just amazing. Yeah, I, I'm
0: not going to rattle off the list of people that I know didn't stand beside me, um, <laughs> but... <laughs> But there there have been, uh, you know, a few that have. And I, you know, I will give a lot of credit to I've already mentioned Chris Childers is a good friend of mine who's stood up for me most of my career. Mitch Light at Athlon Sports who hired me there and has sort of been a a, a mentor and a proponent for, for helping me along the way. But it's not like that anymore, you know? Like the way everyone has to, work, you know, look out for themselves and, you know, the corporate nature of things and um, so on and so forth. So I just don't, you know, I don't think it's, you know, especially down here in the South, I don't think we're in for any more, you know, media unions anytime soon.
1: Well, it's interesting because there's a unionization trend in uh, publications right now and several large, several large newsrooms, including like the Los Angeles Times, the Chicago Tribune, which were part of. Corporations that would never ever have allowed unionization at one point, but right. it's gotten so bad that you know they're now owned by essentially by hedge funds. That they have the 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 folks yeah. in those newsrooms have have unionized, and and the issues are different uh, here twenty years later than than they were when, you know when we were out on strike. It's a very crucial sort of point for labor relations and and and, and big newspapers, and it comes as. There are more economic pressures you know beating down on on these newspapers than ever before
0: biggest mistake you ever made in your career
1: oh man, uh, I almost got fired for this uh, i was uh, was writing a sports media column for the banner, and I put something in there that was let's just call it poorly sourced it was i'd heard it from a friend of a friend and and i you know it was one of these things it was it was a it was a fairly breezy sort of column. And I put something in there about the Gaylord family, which was at, the th- was at the time was thought to be like potential ownership for an NHL team that would be coming for the arena that would be built in 1996. You know, they were trying to get, figure out a way to get professional sports here to Nashville. And so I had put a line in there and hadn't thought much of it. The Gaylord family called my editor and not 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 like my sports editor like the editor of the paper and said fire that kid and eddie jones who was the who was the editor of the banner at that time called me into his office read me the riot act and and then did something really interesting and he's like and he could see that he had made his point and i was i was (laughs) quaking yeah yeah and and eddie said well you ever gonna do this again i said no sir (laughs) no i will not and he's like all right, go forth and send no more. And he called the Gaylord people back and said, "It's a kid. It's a lesson. We're sorry. We'll print the retraction. He'll make good in his next column. And you know, this kid is good and and is going to learn." And it and I think one of the reasons why that wasn't fatal is because the internet did not exist. You know, this, is like, <laughs> this is like 1994. The internet did not exist in a real way, and so my mistake was limited to those papers and it was didn't live in perpetuity on the web you know and i think that's i I think that's a problem now for for kids that that come out they're getting less editing than ever before they're getting less support than ever before and yet their mistakes are beamed worldwide yeah in, in 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 real time like in ways that they never have been before so you know i got lucky i got really really lucky and you know god bless eddie jones you know
0: I think I've made a ton of mistakes, like you know, getting a um, nothing serious on the air. I think one time, and this was a producer of mine, that, and this was, and I don't. It's not really about you know the mistake he made, but it was my show, and so I view it as sort of my name's on the show. Literally, my name was on the show. It was Braden and Fitz was the name of the show, and. Uh, this was during the Predators Cup run, and so I sort of view the airwaves as Fitzy and I are in charge of those, so whatever happens on those airwaves, we sort of need to make sure we're taking either the credit or blame for it, and, and so we, while we didn't say it, in, in real time what happened, this was, this was when Kevin Fiala got injured in the St. Louis series, oh, yeah. really now- a serious injury where he's on the ice and has to be carted off. And there was a report on Twitter from some like person in St. Louis, who's like my so-and-so friend or my husband or my wife, or whatever it was in the EMT, drove the, drove the van, you know, down to the hospital with Kevin Fiala. He's in X, Y, Z condition. And here's the problem. And this was just a tweet from like a, this would be like an anonymous source coming to you with information. This was just a tweet. And so it got read on the air. And immediately I said, "Uh, we're going to double check. Like I immediately was like, I could, I didn't, I didn't say it out loud, but basically I heard in my head going like, wait a second, we need to make sure this is from the right place. And now ironically it turned out to be correct, but there was no way. This was like, as the, like the next morning, right. After the, the Fiala injury. And so there was just no way that the information had actually gotten out yet. And so it was one of those moments where there's no way to confirm it. There was no way to to double check it. There was no way to know if it was not just some person making it up, and so it should not been it should not have been read on the air. And so that that was a mistake. If I view like to your to your question of like like journalistic, you know, on air mistakes like that, where you have to print a retraction of some sort, like that's one of the only. Otherwise, you say you say the wrong name or the wrong team, or you know, you call the person the wrong name all the time, and you just sort of in the moment say, "Hey, my bad about that," and you just kind of apologize and move on. I don't. I think people understand that you miss people misspeak. When you're doing live radio, but that was the only one that I can remember where I felt like we reported on our show information that we probably should not have. That's probably the only time that that's ever happened. Now, you know, people ask me all the time what happened with with the local show and, and say, "Well, why did they cancel your show?" And everyone thinks there's like a reason, <laughs> and there's there's not. There was constant pressure, push and pull between the predators and 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 everyone on the channel uh, because you know, they're a major business partner. And again, go listen to John Hutton's interview with us on lamestream. You'll sort of understand the dynamic when you work with and very closely with the team, but also have to be loyal to your audience. And so not everything we said did the predators love to hear, but sometimes you have to be critical. And I I never, I'm sure there were times that people in that building were furious with what I had to say. And, but, but at some point you sort of have to block that off and say, I'll deal with that. But, but that's not like a reason, like our show got canceled because radio shows get canceled um and i have no evidence that there was any particular reason no one's given me a reason why the show was canceled
1: nobody Uh, came to you and said the the preds wanted you fired
0: no of course not and i don't frankly i don't think that's that would happen but again radio shows get canceled and you go in different directions and again i'll tell anybody i I sat down i had a five-minute conversation with my boss who said we're going in a different direction i said is there any other information you can give me and they said we're going in a different direction and that was it that was the entire conversation. There was just nobody ever gave us a reason. So, and so I don't, it, that's just sort of part of the game though. Like, so I'm thinking, not, of- not, not capital, capital T, capital G, but lowercase, <laughs> lowercase the game,
1: lowercase the <laughs> part game. of the
0: radio business. Let's say that.
1: So, the scene in Moneyball where, where Billy Bean is explaining to his protege how to fire somebody and just the drop the hammer, go on. They're professionals, they understand. I think that the answer that they gave you was horseshit. We're going in a different direction or we are it's time for us to part company or whatever euphemism it is they use. Do you think that, do you, would you rather be cut like that? Or would you rather have a detailed explanation?
0: Um, well, <laughs> I'm really not into the, the, the slinging stories mo- mood right now. Um <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, we'll, we'll do a tell-all at some point. I, I will say this. I was employed by ESPN, Bristol, the mothership at the time. I am employed still currently by Sirius XM as a national radio host. I am employed by Athlon Sports. I felt very comfortable in my own ability to deliver a quality product. I am and was a network-level host And I do not believe it had anything to do with the quality of my work. So
1: in one sense. I can infer whatever I want to from that statement.
0: (laughs) Yes. It's, it's easy. It's easier in one sense because I'm confident in my own work ethic and abilities. Mm -hmm. It's tougher in another sense because I'm the kind of person that wants like all the data, all the information, all the reasons, all the stuff. Like if I go to a, if I go into a doctor's office and the doctor's like, you've got this problem with you. I want to know every single possible detail there is. Like I want, I want prognosis down to the day. (laughs) And then I want to, and then I want to make decisions off of that information. So it's sort of counter, it flies in the face of sort of my natural, natural inclination, which is to want to have all of the data and then soak it all in and then decide for myself what I thought happened. So in that sense, it's sort of forced me to just step back and say, well, do I believe in myself and do I think I, I do a good job or not? And you know, I'd like to think that my, my career, my resume speaks for itself. And so I don't, you know, we took huge chunks out of the competition. How about that?
1: There you go. So, so, so let me switch this a little bit. What's a favorite person you've ever interviewed? So I
0: love non-sports people,
1: uh, they're my, but there's a
0: caveat. They have to be sports people. They have to be non-sports people who have a love and an interest in sports. Those are my favorite people, you know, and, and this is maybe recency bias here, but Trey Crowder, the liberal redneck, who is a big time sports fan who we had on fringe element a couple of months ago and told a story about how he drunk texted T. Martin one time, like worth
1: worth going back and picking it up. It is, podcast. it is
0: still funny today. Like, I can talk to, I've done like three or four interviews with him. I, I can, a comedian who's a sports fan is probably like my perfect <laughs> interview. Cause the content I know will be brilliant and funny and interesting, but also have this sort of foundational understanding of sports. You know, those are, those are my favorite interviews. Um, you know, I, Darius Rucker was a really fun interview just because he's a fun, laid back, jovial guy, but knows South Carolina basketball. And we actually did a show where we interviewed Eric Church and Darius Rucker on the same show because North Carolina and South Carolina had both made it to the final four. A That's couple some years firepower
1: ago. right there. A couple years ago.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you, Jason Fitz, for that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he knows he knows some people. Paul Janaway of the lead singer of pa- St. Paul and the Broken Bones is a huge Braves fan and a huge Alabama Crimson Tide fan and is just this larger than life personality. So he's an entertainer by trade and really, really interesting and funny, but also has this really sort of strong core, you know, informational knowledge about sports, especially in the South. Um, There's a lot of musicians. You'd be shocked. how many musicians are like huge college football fans well this is the this is huge
1: this is the fifth story this is this is how we ended up podcast
0: one of my favorite things about getting to do this job has been getting to meet some of my favorite musicians and learning how much they love college the same things i love like the guys that are in moon taxi that, that love college football the guys are in the wild feathers who love college football the, the, like the Weeks love the Nashville Predators. Like they love the Nashville Predators. Vince, getting to talk to Vince Gill for an hour about the Nashville Predators. Like that kind of stuff is, is what I really, really enjoyed. On the field, ice court, whatever. Rine is probably the, the most polished, most thoughtful, most genuine interview at a professional level that I think I can ever possibly imagine. I'll throw another one out. Patrick Young, former big man for the Florida Gators. Most college kids that you interview are not good interviews.
1: Terrible. Most Absolutely of them are just terrible.
0: And I don't expect an 18 or 19 year old kid. to just, be great. They just don't
1: know who hairy. they are yet.
0: Patrick young was a, an exceptional interview. I, I interviewed him face to face for 10 minutes after a game in the sec championship game. And I was just, I walked away going, wow, <laughs> that guy's amazing. Uh, Foster Moreau who plays in the NFL right now is a tight end for LSU. Just a, a brilliant guy. Damian Harris was just one of the most thoughtful people I've ever talked to, I, you know. Uh, and then my favorite college athlete probably ever was Malcolm Mitchell. I played wide receiver at Georgia, came into college as a, uh, at, at a middle school reading level, came in, came, got to Georgia at a middle school reading level, left Georgia as a published children's book author. Wow. And to me, that story is what college football is all about, like at its sort of innocent, naive core. Like that's that's the kind of guy that I view college football in my
1: innocent, naive brain. <laughs> that's what it is. That's fantastic. What about you? My, my favorite person I've been ever interviewed anybody would have heard of uh, is Pat Martin. So Pat owns I've done a lot of food writing. Pat owns Martin's Barbecue here in town. Pat is Pat's one of the most genuine, just straightforward kind of guys that you would ever want to ever want to uh, know. We sat down for a chapter in a book that, that I wrote last year, kind of picking through his career and picking through, you know, what made him want to cook and what made him want to, he talked about, he originally started out at Freed Hardeman, which is a church Christ school, you know, over in, over in West Tennessee, uh, got kicked out right before graduation, (laughs) um, for reasons that probably had to do with beer and other things. And so ends up finishing, finishing up here in town has this starts his career as a, as a, uh, in the financial world. I think he was a municipal bond guy, hated it, wanted out of it and was willing to do the work. You know, Pat was working 90 hour weeks to make, you know, to make this barbecue place in a strip mall in Nolansville work. And then he turned that into a restaurant. They turned that into two restaurants and then he and kept doubling down. Uh, and I don't think what people understand is that, you know, when when he opened that big tower downtown, you know, the big three or four story place uh, right near the arena, Pat pushed all of his chips to the middle and, and bet everything on himself and and on the people that that worked for him, that they could pull that off. You know, guys like that just amaze me. It absolutely amaze me. And plus, he's like just one of, the, one of the most genuinely nice people in the world and does not give a shit. You know, if he, he will tell you exactly what is on his mind. And, and, that's, and that's rare these days. And it, it, the hardest yeah. thing to do in an interview is to get somebody to their real self and get them to talk about in a way that is meaningful and not just, oh, OK, I need to hear I need to deliver these things in this interview.
0: Yeah, and, and I know Steve Gorman on our previous episode, again, check out that one as well, um, sort of talked about when he came into the business of Sports Talk Radio that his interviewing style was never to sort of like get somebody to say something and like, oh, I gotcha. I do view my role as, as an interviewing individual is to make you feel so comfortable that you may say something or explain something or talk about something that you trained yourself not to talk about. Right. especially if you're a coach or a GM or a player, it's not that I'm trying to get you to like get you in trouble. It's just, I want to see the human side of people. I want to see the reality of what people are going through or the, the up and the down of a situation with a player or a coach. And, and you, you're just, you're, you're trained so hard to not say anything about anything, especially in football, you know, and this is where I loved covering college baseball. I, I, college baseball coaches will like drink beer with you and just, run their mouths about everything and not in a bad way, but because their sport doesn't get a ton of coverage, they don't have the same sort of media concerns,
1: right? They haven't been burned before,
0: but like the, one of my proudest achievements is trying to, is getting Mike Vrabel to explain how he saved a cat during the flood in Houston during, during the hurricane and like joking around about his cat. Like how many times have you heard Mike Vrabel laugh about anything? (laughs) Like, so, so the goal is to just, and again, I wasn't trying to get Mike Vrabel to explain how he, you know, designs his front multiplicity so that they, some other team could learn about it. The goal is to just get to know you a little bit more and, and bring that guard down. And that's sort of the goal I always view of every interview is to make somebody feel comfortable, have some fun, make it feel normal and and just have a conversation. And and if ideally let people in to to see who you are like that, that was always sort of the goal of the, of an interview. And some people are good at letting you do that. And some people are trained not to.
1: Right which is which is why I think a couple of people have talked about it on this show Don for instance was talking about this when you get coaches sort of in production meetings and they will actually they will actually tell you what they're really thinking and they'll actually really dish yep. on something Yep. I, I I think that's what the from a media perspective like that's what the hope is in that coaches room that they always do on national championship games like you're wanting somebody to just unload and go well that was a dumb play call or that was or I saw this coming and they never should have done X or Y or yeah
0: I I think this might be off the record so I don't even know but I don't care even it's so funny you bring up that show because I know for a fact a Big 12 coach got off the air of the Georgia Alabama National Championship game and said there's no chance anyone from our league could could play in that game (laughs) and (laughs) But that that was an off that was as soon as the lights went down. That was the commentary. And that's the stuff I want to see on the air. But yeah. no one's but no one's ever going ever going to say that kind of stuff.
1: What's the worst interview you've ever had?
0: Oh, wow. You ever um, have one just go
1: sideways on you?
0: N- nothing that ever was like Chris Everett, Jim Everett thing. Like nothing like nothing like Jim Rome like poking fun at someone because again, I never was I never tried to be antagonistic about right. anything. That's not my style of broadcasting in, in the first place. Um, I, I think just where you have nothing to say, like if you're going to give me a three word answer, some of that could be my fault. I've given you a yes, no question. Right. And and maybe there you've given me a bad answer. And that's maybe that's my fault as a, as an interviewer. But really, and unfortunately, because I've worked a lot with college athletes, just there's a lot of college athletes who don't have a lot of practice giving long answers to complicated questions. And that's just some of that's the coach's fault and the system's fault for not giving them opportunities. And some of them just don't have you know, time to do it and, and they're not practicing. So a lot of college athletes are, are pretty bad. Marshall Henderson was one of the most awkward interviews I've ever done. Um, <laughs> Ole Miss won the SEC championship game. And I went into the locker room live on Sirius XM and got, got a one-on-one with Marshall Henderson. And I said, my first question was sort of like, Hey, Marshall, you've had, there's been so many people that have had so many things to say about you guys. How good does it feel to sort of silence the doubters as a champion now? So I thought that was a pretty fair question to, to lead with give him a chance to sort of brag about his team and he sat there in silence staring at his phone texting I think on purpose so he just didn't respond just dead silence and I'm going uh we get to like three and four seconds of silence five seconds six seconds and then finally he goes oh wait what, what oh what, I'm sorry did you say something man what, what you know in in like proto <laughs> prototypical Marshall Henderson way yeah. and it was his way of sort of giving me an answer
1: Hard to believe that guy washed out of the league.
0: <laughs> no, it was his answer. His answer was, right. I got nothing to say to you. But he did it in just super Marshall Henderson way. And so that was one of the most awkward. And then it was kind of a normal-ish interview after that. A couple of questions. But like, that's one of those moments where I just was, what do I do? This person's not responding to me and acknowledging that we're on radio right now.
1: <laughs> like, what do, <laughs> like what, do, what do I do? Dead national air. Mine was Patton Oswalt. Oh, that's uh, a shame. So Patton Oswalt is one of the funniest people on the planet. He was coming to Nashville for something. I was, I was editor of the scene at the time. And, and as the, as the scene editor, you get to cherry pick certain assignments because, you know, because you can. And (laughs) because you're the boss, because you're the boss and Oswalt was coming. And and I was like, well, you know, I I really want to talk to him. I'd seen him a few times before I talked to him. After a show in Chicago years ago, he's just a genuinely nice guy. Again, one of the funniest people on the planet. What you have to what you have to understand is that when people are doing interviews with you, local media person, and they're a national figure, a lot of times they're in kind of a car wash situation where they're doing 50 of these interviews over the span of a couple of days,
0: man, I caught the exact, them. giving the exact same answers to 50 people
1: you know, yeah. Bill in Topeka, good to talk to you. Uh, And so I had 15 minutes with him and the interview lasted about six minutes. It was a situation where I asked maybe a bad question to start with. I thought I was asking kind of a, kind of an easy question to get us just talking. And I had asked a question that he has probably answered, you know, a hundred times. And you know what? I don't blame him. He was tired of answering that question. (laughs) You know, he just hadn't answered it for me. He gave me, he gave me, you know, the three word answer. He gave me, you know, a very, a very short kind of answer. And I sensed it going sideways. And so I did a follow-up and my follow-up was maybe not very good either. And so it went sideways even further. At some point in those, those sort of interviews, like you just don't recover from them. And the interview was so bad that I like, I ended up killing the feature (laughs) Oh man! Uh, and and, you know, it's nothing about him. Uh, It just, it was the situation and the, and the time and, and, and I, and I I felt really bad because, you know, this is a guy that I, I've seen most of his, you know, I've seen most of the movies he's in. I've seen a lot of his TV stuff. I've seen him live a few times. He's a legitimately just hilarious guy. And the whole thing of it is you're coming to people wanting some slice of their life at, at that point for your publication. And it, it, it's, it's, it's a stupid game that's set up by the, the system, uh, you know, kind of the celebrity interview system that we have. And so when, when I happened to get there, I asked, you know, the, the bad question, yeah. he gave the bad answer. It, it, it went sideways and, you know, it ended up being unusable. But I,
0: I, I do think one of like the, the moment when a, when a, when a guest, especially one that, you know, is doing a lot of interviews like that. When a guest says something like, you know, I never thought about that before, or I've never been asked that before. Like that's always when I'm, I get real proud. I'm like, Oh, that was a good question. Like I did something well. If, 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 if I made you think about something, I've always wanted to, I want someone to, you know, when I go back to book you again, I want someone to say yes because they remember the fact that there was a unique aspect or a unique question or a different we could. I could bring Reese Davis on a college football show and ask him. You know, what do you think about Alabama's defense? You know, like anybody can do that. But if you if you bring Herb Street on and you say, "How do we add more transparency to our sport?" and he says, "Man, no one's ever asked me that before." Like that's that's the that's when I feel like I'm doing my job at at its sort of purest form.
1: And conversely, real quick, when you ask someone a question and their response is, "Really?" That's <laughs> not a good sign,
0: right? Uh, so I don't, I I could put like a million qualifiers on this. And if we were drinking beer, sitting around at a bar, it would be a lot more fun. But I I do want to know you're sitting at a four top and you've got three interviews at the same time that you can, you you can pick your dream three interviews that you have not conducted. I I would like to say sports and non-sports, but I don't think we have that much time. So pick, pick three people you want to sit down with and have dinner with that would be at that table that you get to spend 30 minutes with each of them doing a a long interview and you haven't had a chance to interview them. In your career,
1: um, first is a guy named Alan Shearer. Alan Shearer was the was the the all time leader in goals for Newcastle United. Was in England, uh, played played for England at the, uh, in the Euros. Didn't go to a World Cup. Uh, or wait, I guess he would have gone to the ninety eight World Cup. Um, but your Shearer, Newcastle
0: fandom runs deep, my yeah, friend.
1: This is my this is my fandom here. But but is a Shearer is a commentator on the BBC right now. It is a really bright articulate guy and and also like one of the generally regarded as like one of the nicer more generous people uh, we, we can make this happen like i could get him on the show with yeah, you well come on down i'm, I'm do all it. yours sure sure would be great probably president obama yeah uh, because yeah. I've, I've listened to you know he's on a book especially show.
0: especially now because he's a little more free he's a little uh he's a little uh a little saucy
1: right now yes he <laughs> as, has- as saucy as he can get <laughs> Obama, I've heard like 10 interviews with him on because he's on a book tour. And is just, uh, he's an interesting guy who gives like really kind of thoughtful answers. Uh, It would just be kind of a fun conversation. I I heard him on Bill Simmons podcast here, uh, you know, last week, I don't know how
0: I don't know how he's not a uh, one of the choices.
1: Yeah but they, they got to, they got to talk, you know, they got down to the minutia of, you know, college of like pro sports and Bulls fandom and all this other stuff. And it was just, it was just a lot of fun. It was, it was, it was very, it was very little, pol- there was some politics involved in there because that's in the book, but it, it was more about kind of like him being a fan. How bet you think
0: about it and I'll give you mine. It okay. was, it, Obama, I will take Obama off the table, which allows me to put my fourth guy in there because, yeah. um, but there's so many different people that would be, that would be fascinating. Like like Megan Rapinoe would be amazing. I, I would love to sit down for an hour and just talk to her about everything. Uh, I think Megan Rapinoe would be at the top of the list. Um, Obama would be up there. Bill Murray would be up there. I've never interviewed anybody of that quality in terms of like celebrity status before. I, I would love to talk with him. And then I can't decide between Sturgill and Isbell who would be more interesting to talk to because I think they both would be exceptionally interesting. And I don't know which one... Like it depends on if Sturdle's in a bad mood. Maybe <laughs> you might you might catch him where he wants to burn the whole world down, and so you might get a great interview, or or, or maybe not. I don't know. Isbell probably feels a little bit more down the middle, but he is extremely. I've heard of plenty of Jason Isbell interviews where I've heard him talk about like just power and money, and like he he doesn't mind going into really heavy topics. And I I would sit down with that. That's I also know he's a huge sports fan, a huge Braves fan, so I think that would be that would hit that sweet spot of. You know, not only am I a fan of his work, but just I know he's an interesting person and an entertainer, but also has a foundational understanding of sports. And that's that's sort of the sweet spot that I enjoy the most.
1: Isbel has a line in, I think it's in Speed Trap Town where he says those five a bastards run a shallow cross. <laughs> and I and I would just, I would love I would I would love to just know where that came from. I just want to I just want to hear him talk Is about that the
0: boys last chance in a man's first loss. I believe. Yeah
1: yeah and, and I mean it's, it's a brilliant song anyway and you could say that about you know 20 different songs of his he he's uh I mean he is one of the he's he's one of the I mean he would be on a list I mean if, if you're going to take him I guess I need to take somebody else we're doing a
0: draft of who now we're going
1: to interview <laughs> um
0: I because I, I heard an interview with him talking and he just was like he's like I'm a capitalist I I I love Jordans and and old guitars And so but but then he gets his very next thought is but but you only need so much of that stuff until other people need it more than you and there's diminishing returns and it's just he's just incredibly introspective and I my wife and I talk about this all the time because she's a huge fan as well to be a great storyteller of the type of stories that he can tell you sort of have to have been through the sewers and been into the places where all the demons live to come back and actually tell the stories about what it's like where the demons are right and to, to then come back and be able to explain it and tell it. All right. So who's
1: your third guy? So my my third person is Jane Mayer. She's a she's a writer for the New Yorker, uh, and just she wrote a book that is one of my favorite books. I would recommend this to anyone. It's called Dark Money, that is inside how the the dark money apparatus, the the kind of the untransparent money that has flooded into politics over the last ten years. Uh, Kind of the origins of it, the Koch Brothers Network that has funneled a lot of it into very specific sort of places, what some of the outcomes of it are. She's just generally like one of the smartest people in the world. And I think she's a brilliant writer and would just love to sit down and have a conversation with her about this. In part because I've written a lot about this at the local level but never to the extent that she has. And I would just love to hear kind of all the stories. Yeah.
0: Yeah. If you want to, if you want to learn about some really posh hotel gatherings in the desert or, (laughs) you know, the heritage foundation in 1965, like, yeah, it, it is one of the greatest, most important books. I felt like I was taking the red pill. Yeah. When I read that book, I think you should package it with another. Now we're in the recommendations portion. I think you should package it with the family if you want to read truly about like the last 110-15 years of sort of how we have divided as a country into two separate groups, uh, the two of them will do a lot of those two books, The Family and Dark Money, very dense, but very thorough. And Very uh, thorough.
1: And, and she's, a, she's a hell of a writer. Fascinating. And the material doesn't lend itself to it, but she makes it accessible in a way that I mean, I, I picked it up because I was fascinated in the subject and walked away with as just a huge fan of her as a journalist and as a writer and just yeah she's just amazing
0: she's she's very very good and has a lot of other stuff where you can read too but that's the definitive work if you want to understand our current climate and would be a fascinating person to sit down with for an hour at dinner and interview and have a fun time with so I think that does it we've rambled long enough here uh, I hope everybody has a, a great and wonderful happy holiday Merry Christmas Happy Hanukkah. Uh, you know, the Festivus for the rest of us. We, we didn't really air too many grievances today, Steve, but uh, we, we had, had a good couple. time. We had a good time.
1: <laughs> Merry um, Christmas, Braden,
0: And to you as well and your family. Everybody stay safe. Don't don't gather in large groups indoors uh, and and just be smart. Just be smart. That's all I ask. Ride
1: it out, people. We can we're, see
0: it. We're close, baby. We're close. The light at that end of the tunnel is getting bigger and bigger. Steve, great job as usual. Where can people follow you?
1: At Scavendish on Twitter. And where can they follow you? at Braden
0: Gall, at Braden D Gall on Instagram, at 440 Sports on Twitter and Facebook
1: as well. So Rate, review, subscribe, smash the subscribe button, folks. We really appreciate you listening to us.
0: Thank you guys for listening. Please share the show. I'm about to go smash some bourbon. You guys have a great holiday. Thank you for listening. For Steve Cavendish, my name's Braden Gall. This has been Lame Stream Sports on the 440 Sports Network.